Good afternoon to all. Nice to be with you on a Sunday afternoon uh, from Tyler, Texas. I uh, hope that you are having a good Sunday and hope that all is well uh, with you and with those that you love. Uh, it's a beautiful day in Texas, a nice, wonderful, sunny spring day. And uh, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, I am wearing this particular shirt. Um, I hope you can see it very well, but just in case, there you go. Um, yeah, I don't have very many ACU shirts, and um, basically my graduate work was done from ACU and um, never actually lived on campus, uh, never was in town for longer than a week uh, doing uh, graduate work either by remote uh, through uh, external studies in San Antonio or uh, in um, even in Houston or um, just going for the doctor ministry program and uh, staying on campus uh, for about a week at a time uh, and um, or at least in town. Uh, great program uh, that was led by a wonderful man and the late Dr. Charles Seibert. Uh, but I after the game last night, which by the way, I of course didn't see, uh, but it was a great, great game. Congratulations to the Wildcats and to all who are associated with ACU. A big, big win over another team that I really follow and love, the Texas Longhorns. Uh, but you got to have a special place in your heart for ACU today. And that's a that was a great, great victory. And congratulations to them. I tend to follow all the Texas team, Texas, the Aggies, um, Mavericks and Spurs, um, Cowboys and Texans, Rangers and Astros, all of the the Texas teams I love and follow being, a, a, you know, born and raised here in Texas, lived in Texas almost all of our lives. So it's, um, it's a great, uh, great day uh, to be an ACU Wildcat and a Wildcat fan. So congratulations to ACU. Sure, their greatest uh, basketball victory ever, perhaps one of their greatest, uh, certainly one of their greatest, if not the greatest intercollegiate sports uh, victories. So congratulations to all of them and uh, appreciate everyone joining in. We have lots of friends uh, joining in already. Larry and Lynn Murphy, wonderful to see you today at church. I'm so thankful. Uh, that you are safe and healthy and that uh, you are in a position now to be able to join us in person as you did this morning. What a blessing. We had 280, 280 in our assembly in person this morning. We had uh, almost 90 different sites that were watching online live. And so that represents, uh, you know, a lot of people there as well. So we're grateful for the opportunities God has given us. And for all of you out there who are participating with us online through our online broadcasts on Sunday morning, such as uh, many of you were today, but also on these Facebook studies uh, on uh, Sunday afternoons and then on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 3 p.m. Central as we go through the book of of Colossians. Uh, nice to see Lenny and Joe Allard here. Great to see you all. And uh, my dear friends, Myron and Elizabeth Granberry, who have told me that they are 
they will soon be back in our worship assemblies in person. And we respect everyone and your decisions and know that there are a lot of people that are still holding back, but that are still connected with us online, still continuing to keep up with everyone and continuing to give, continuing to participate in our online services and classes. And we appreciate that uh, so very, very much. Uh, we come to the 10th chapter of Mark uh, today. And Mark chapter 10 is a, is a chapter filled with questions for Jesus. Some literally asked, uh, some that he just comments on because of the situation and what, uh, what goes on. So I want us to take a look at these questions. And it is, uh, you think that some of the questions are uh, really kind of obvious, but they're really not. And some of the questions you know from the start are very complicated. And that's the case for the first of the, of the questions, which has to do with divorce and remarriage. So let's just read the passage first of all, as people ask Jesus, what about divorce? And then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. Mark 10, verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea at, across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. What a great comment right there. <laughs> as was his custom, he taught them. Every time he had a crowd, that's what he did. He shared the message of the Father with them, and uh, what a great comment on, on Christ. Uh, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So right away we realize their their motives are impure they're not asking this out of concern for the law they're not asking this out of concern for the people around them who i'm sure were asking them that question they were asking this simply to test jesus they're trying to trap him we see this in the other context when he's asked questions uh, such as later in his life as recorded in the gospel of matthew but we, um, we find Jesus treating each of the questions with the respect it deserves, rather, even when the questioner's uh, motives are, uh, are evil. So they ask, come to him and test him by asking, verse 2 of Mark 10, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied in verse 3, what does the Bible say? He asks, first of all, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus' response here, and I think one of the things that we'll say as we talk about these words in these verses, is that uh, he goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden as he talks about the sanctity of marriage. Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you that law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 1 through 2. Therefore, he says in verse 9, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another com woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Very strong teaching, very strong teaching. And I think Jesus' answer is this, marriage is sacred and it should be kept sacred. Even though the questioners were asking him this question simply for the sake of testing him, trying to trap him, they thought, well, whichever way he goes, we've got him. They think that a lot. <laughs> they finally learned their lesson. 
but uh, it takes a while. They think that if he says, well, I think that people you should be compassionate for people, um, then they'll say, well, he disrespects the law. And if he says, well, you've got to hold to the law, they'll say, well, uh, he doesn't care about people. But what Jesus does, as he always does, is he gets the better of them by remaining faithful to the word of God and the will of God. And Jesus looks back uh, to these passages in Genesis, takes them back to what Moses said, but in the law, but also takes them to God's idea and God's vision for marriage from the beginning. And from the beginning, divorce was not in the picture. From the beginning, God created them male and female. And I believe that that's still true today in spite of the discussion that's going on over transgender issues. I think that's a tragedy. And I think that that we need to have a word of love uh, for those who struggle in that area and uh, help them as, as best we can. But we go back to the fact that we are all created in God's image and that we are all created male and female. Uh, and, and then that leads us to marriage. Uh, from the very beginning, the first couple that was created, Adam and Eve, God pronounced this vision of marriage uh, that um, Adam said to Eve, "This for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. That's Moses' commentary. That's the, the vision of Adam and Eve when they first began, and that was the vision of God as he created them. He created them male and female, um, a man is to cleave to his wife, a wife is to cleave to her husband, and, um, and they are two to become one flesh. God blesses the sexual morality and relationship between a husband and wife in those words as well. And there was no shame, as you remember in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, they were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Why? Because this was exactly what God intended for husbands and wife to have that intimate relationship and closeness with each other. But what happened is, as Jesus says, people's hearts were hard and they didn't follow the will of God and they didn't follow the vision for God in marriage. And so Jesus pronounces them and, and says, look, let's go back to the vision of the Father. Let's go back to why this was created in the first place. And so he gives a very difficult teaching. And I think one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of as we look at this scripture and as we look at all scripture is we ask ourselves, OK, what does the Bible also say about this? Jesus himself takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2, and that's significant. He takes us back to what Moses said in the law. That's significant. Uh, we could also bring in the prophets who spoke very uh, much against uh, the uh, 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 disrespecting of marriage that they saw in their day. Uh, whether you're talking about Malachi the prophet or you're talking about Nathan going uh, to David after his sin with Bathsheba, whether you're talking uh, about uh, Ezra as he tries to help the people who had returned to the land uh, to not just restore the things such as the temple and all those other things that they were doing, but he also called them to restore faithfulness to God's word. And that included their, their disrespecting uh, the sanctity of marriage. We also look at other passages in scripture, such as Matthew 19, uh, that we looked at in our uh, earlier series on Facebook uh, last year. First Corinthians 7, Paul speaks much about 
the sanctity of marriage and has comments that uh, that maybe someone would read and say, look, that's inconsistent with what Jesus said. It's, it's very consistent with what Jesus said. And that's why we want to talk about this today. The great passage in Hebrews 13, verse four, marriage is honorable and the marriage bed, the physical relationship between the husband and wife is pure and is to be kept pure. Uh, but God will judge all of those who are sexually immoral. Hebrews 13, verse four. Uh, and of course, Luke 16, verse 18 is a one verse commentary on this as well where he says something, he records Jesus saying something very similar to what Jesus says. One of the interesting things about this passage to me is that it, um, it's a little different from Matthew 19 and also Matthew 5, where Jesus comments on the sanctity of marriage in the Sermon on the Mount, and also the sanctity of sexual morality in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and in Matthew 19, uh, Matthew records Jesus being uh, a little bit stronger than Mark and Luke, or uh, a little less strong, a little not quite as strong as Mark and Luke record. Uh, Mark and Luke, uh, in Matthew 19, Matthew says, except for sexual immorality. So Ma Matthew records Jesus saying in Matthew 19 that you can uh, be divorced and remarried because of sexual immorality on the part of your spouse. Mark and Luke offer no, no reason. Uh, as Jesus says in Mark and uh, Mark 10 here, and also in Luke 16, um, there's no, there's no caveat for um, adultery. Your spouse commits adultery. There's no, no reason, according to Mark and Luke, that Jesus gives. He just says it's wrong, and anyone who does it is involved in um, um, in marriage and divorce and remarriage is uh, is committing adultery. So what does that tell us? Well, that tells us, first of all, that we have to read all the scripture. If you're one who quotes Matthew 19 and says clearly that the only reason Jesus gives for uh, getting a divorce and remarriage is sexual immorality, then what are you going to say to the person that says, no, Mark and Luke record it differently and don't even give that reason? And, I, and what are you going to do with 1 Corinthians 7? And this is why I think it's important for us to consider all of this teaching of scripture. Paul gives several uh, caveats or several reasons in 1 Corinthians 7 that we have to judge this with humility and with compassion. He talks about individuals who are uh, having to break up their marriage and are considering getting remarried. And Paul says, look, you need to do this only in the Lord. And, and I think what he's saying there is according to the will of the Lord and with the blessing of the Lord. And that's a, that's a very subjective uh, thing, and it makes for some very complicated issues. Um, the laws and teaching of Scripture are given to uphold the sanctity of marriage and to protect individuals. And in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, written so long ago, to especially protect women who could be taken advantage of because of the selfish, uncaring actions of others. Um, I've, I've preached on this a lot through the years and even recently, and we've talked about it in these studies, uh, that we have to be compassionate and that if compassionate and, and like Jesus, if we are being compassionate towards those who are having difficulties in their lives, but we're also wanting to be faithful to the word and will of God, uh, then we're probably going to be, uh, called inconsistent. People are going to say, hey, look, you're, you're, not, you're not being faithful to what Scripture says, <laughs> which calls us to love our neighbor as ourself and be forgiving and accepting and helpful. 
uh, servants, yes, but and consider our own sins, yes. And, but it also says that marriage is, is sacred and is to be kept sacred. And yes, both of those things are true. And that means that there are very difficult situations. There are a lot of people out there uh, that are struggling and have struggled with difficulties uh, in their marriages and have experienced divorce in their lives, either directly or on the part of their loved ones. Um, as you know, likely, if you've heard me speak before for very long, uh, my parents were divorced after 20 years of marriage when I was uh, about a sophomore in high school. And I, you know, I, I realized that there's a lot of tragedy and that there are no winners. But I also realized, just as Jesus did, that people's hearts are hard and that people don't always do the things they need to do to save their marriage. And so Jesus speaks to that, just as Moses spoke to that, just as Paul spoke to that. God has spoken to that. What does he say? Well, he says that the sanctity of marriage is to be is something that's sacred and is to be kept sacred. Um, sexual morality is something that is sacred and is to be kept sacred. Um, even though our country is uh, more and more inclined to accept sexual immorality, whether uh, two people that aren't married, heterosexual, that are involved in a sexual relationship, someone that is involved with someone that is someone else's husband or wife, that's called adultery in scripture, or homosexual relationships. All of those are condemned in scripture, all of them, all of them. Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament letters, all of them are condemned in scripture very consistently. And I hope and pray that if you have questions about these things, I can't solve everything in a 30-minute lesson, and I can't give these verses from Mark at the beginning of chapter 10, even this whole lesson. But I do hope and pray that you'll reach out to someone who will that you can trust to speak the truth to you, to help you. Um, I realize that people's hearts are hard and some marriages can't be saved. And I also realize that Paul speaks very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, that uh, individuals, even with divorce in their background, may be able to marry again uh, if it's God's will. And determining that is a hard, hard thing. So I pray for you. And I realize that, um, again, if this is our message, if we are faithful to the will and law of God, at the same time, we are faithful to loving and being compassionate towards those who are struggling, then um, we could be shot at from both sides. I get that. But that's our that's our call. Jesus came, John 1 says, uh, full of grace and truth. And and we are to do the same. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. Uh, we are always to speak. It is always to be the truth that we speak, but it must always be done in love. Okay, next question. What about these kids? Mark 10, beginning in verse 13. This is such a great story. Mark 10, 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus saw, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. <laughs> so when the kids run up to Jesus and the young parents are scurrying them along to get a blessing from the Lord, uh, the disciples in their arrogance and in their pride are annoyed, and they want to shoo them away so that they can talk to Jesus about the important stuff. <laughs> and not only does Jesus rebuke them with his words, he rebukes them with his actions. He grabs the little children, and he takes them, and he takes them in his arms, and he blesses them. 
what a great picture. What a great picture. This is one of the favorite scenes of artists, uh, one of our favorite little stories as we read about Jesus and his compassion. Let the little children come to me. So much of scripture speaks about raising our children in the love and discipline and admonition and word of the Lord such as we read in the first few verses of Ephesians 6, such as we're seeing in Colossians 3 and 4 as we read through these very practical verses on Tuesdays and Thursdays afternoons at 3 p.m. Uh, just as Deuteronomy 6 said, Moses said, look, you, you, not only does he say you, you do not withhold the children from hearing the story, he commands them to tell them the story. That's why they did the Passover and the um, and the Sabbath and all of those things so that the kids will generate questions and they'll say, what, why do we do this? It's a part of the Passover celebration. When the kids ask, why, why do we do this? Then uh, the parents tell the story. Uh, what a great, great image that is. Okay, question number three, starting in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is another well-known story. Matthew 10, verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Of course, Jesus could have gone on and on, but he made his point. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy, and very likely the man is telling the truth. Verse 20, um, verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. I love that. I think it's only Mark uh, that says that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Some of the other translations say that the man was seeking to justify himself. And so he asked that question. Uh, same with the man who asked about uh, loving your neighbor as yourself in Luke 10. Uh, that inspires that great uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus looked at this man and loved him, even though he knew his heart was wrong. Uh, even though he was all about doing things, but not about uh, giving himself. To Christ. Next Sunday morning, we're going to be in Romans 12, the first few verses, and that great Romans 12 verse 1 calls us in view of God's mercies because of everything he's done for us to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. Just as we saw in Colossians 3 verse 17 this past week and the last few weeks, that everything we say and everything we do is done to honor God, that is done to honor Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's how we're to live our lives, uh, just asking ourselves, is this something that God would be pleased with? Um, we don't do that perfectly. We all fail. But that should be the path we're on. That should be our desire and, um, and seek to do what is God's will. At this, verse, uh, Jesus looked at him and loved him, verse 21. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Instead of doing everything in the world he could to bring this man into his company of followers, Jesus told him the one thing that would chase him away. We seem to forget that sometimes in our desire to build up numbers, and I'm all about doing that. 
in our desire to reach people. And of course, I'm all about doing that. Certainly Jesus was as well. But we don't shy away from the word of God. And the word of God says that we follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And this was the one thing that was coming between this man and his creator. And Jesus called him out on it. And that's what he tends to do. That's what he tends to do. And the man went away sorrowful. Jesus doesn't tell this to everyone. Why? Because not everyone has to do it. Not everyone has this issue. Paul speaks a lot about the rich, and Jesus will comment more on that as we read the rest of this passage. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, instructing Timothy, look, tell those who are rich in this present world not to put their trust in their wealth, to hold on to it, but with an open hand, to be willing to give so that God will use what you have been blessed with for the purpose that he gave it to you, which is to help and serve others in addition uh, to providing for your own needs and the needs of your loved ones. That's a biblical theology of money right there. And Jesus announces it. The Old Testament teaches it. Uh, the New Testament letters teach it as well. Verse 23 of Mark 10, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Not impossible, but, but hard. He said the same thing in the parable of the sower and the soils. Remember that which was thrown among the thorns? They get tied up and caught up in the cares of this world and in wealth and material things, and it chokes out the will of God. Um, the disciples were amazed at his words, verse 24, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's a, that's a pretty clear and plain illustration, and there are several versions of what it might mean. But one thing we do know that Jesus is saying is this is hard. This is not easy. It is a, something that Satan uses in the lives of the wealthy to turn them away from, from God. Uh, that's certainly his point. Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, who can? This guy observed all the law. This guy kept things pure from the time he was a boy. And yet Jesus called him out because his heart was not right. Uh, so, so who then can be saved? Well, Jesus answers our questions. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. That's a great passage that you can use, kind of like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, it's in a particular context, and I think it's good to be aware of the context. Helps us understand the statement. But that doesn't mean it's not a great statement to remember that even when things are not humanly possible with God, all things are possible. Even for this man, it would have been possible for him to enter the kingdom of heaven had he relied upon God and been willing to give everything to God. Jesus doesn't want to share the throne in our hearts with anything or anyone. And, and he will walk away. Uh, before he will force us to accept him wholeheartedly. That's what he did with this man. Uh, that's what we're called to do as well. We don't force anybody to accept the word of God, to accept Jesus as their Lord and to serve him wholeheartedly, to offer their bodies, their, themselves as living sacrifices. But we plead with them and we pray for them and we try to move them and encourage them to do that, not being manipulative, uh, but seeking to persuade them that this way is better, that God's way is better, that human with humanity, all things 
are not possible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up, of course, we have left everything to follow you. <laughs> I can see Jesus smiling and nodding his head and saying, okay, Peter, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I think Jesus is saying the same thing here that he said in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, how God takes care of them. And he gives us that great passage in Matthew 6, verse 33, and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. Well, as he says here, I don't think he's promising us that we're going to receive a hundred times as much in a material sense. Um, but he does say that we're going to have all that we need and God will provide for everything that's lacking in our lives. And, um, and those things are hard. It's hard to make those choices to serve and follow God wholeheartedly. But Jesus says, if you're willing to do it, if this man had been willing to do it, he would have found fulfillment that none of his material things could bring. Uh, just like the story in Luke 12 of the man who had so much wealth that he ran out of space. So he, instead of giving some of it to the poor, he built bigger barns because his heart was selfish. Not, not a sin to build a bigger barn, but it is a sin, just like with this man. It's not a sin to be wealth, but it is a, to be wealthy, but it is a sin if that wealth is your God and those material concerns are choking out the needs of the kingdom. Um, Jesus will call us out on that. Okay, next question. Question four. Why are we going to Jerusalem? <laughs> they just want to kill you there. I love these disciples. Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Jesus has already been telling them, we're going there, and I'm going to be killed. And he tells them that again. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. We remember in other instances when Jesus tells them these things, Peter says, no, 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 this would never happen to you. And Jesus calls him Satan because this was the Father's will. Um, you see, the Father isn't just concerned with our happiness at the moment. That's not his primary concern at all. But what he is concerned with is that we are faithful and that we use our lives to his glory and for the sake of others. And that's what Jesus was called to do. Um, and so he tells them, well, here's why we're going to Jerusalem, for the very reasons that you're thinking that we shouldn't. Um, and so we continue on with this question about greatness and, and uh, servanthood like we did with the children and now with Jesus giving his life. And so this is where Mark records this story that we find also in Matthew 20. Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We know that in Matthew 20, it was their mother also that came to Jesus with this request. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And, and Jesus was telling the truth, obviously. Uh, John would be exiled to the island of Patmos in, in his later years and after a lifetime of suffering uh, for the cause of Christ. And his brother James, not James, the half-brother of the Lord that wrote the book of James and we read about in the book of Acts, but James, the brother of John, one of the three closest to Jesus, would be the first apostle killed for his faith in Acts chapter 12. Well, the other 10 now become aware that James and John did this. And I think their first thought is, oh, man, I should have gotten to Jesus first because this is what they wanted to. But Jesus, um, Jesus calls them all out and condemns this selfish attitude. Verse 41, when the 10 heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Oh, we need to hear that so plainly today. Don't, don't live the way the world lives. Don't see greatness the way the world sees it. Don't accept the world's standards. Next week again, as we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, that grace verse, great verse 1 that calls us to present ourselves, our lives, our bodies as living sacrifices, far from what our current culture says, that we should do whatever it takes to make us happy. That's not anywhere found in Scripture. In, the, in fact, the opposite is found. Our desire should be to serve the Lord and to love our neighbor as ourselves and to do that sacrificially, uh, to present our bodies as living sacrifices. But then the second verse of Romans 12 says don't be uh, conformed to the to the practices and the culture and the values of this world but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind i love and i'll mention it next sunday morning the the jb phillips translation of that verse romans 12 verse 2 don't let the world squeeze you into its mold james and john and the other apostles they had done that they had let the world squeeze their understanding of the what is what it truly means to be great uh, into the mold of the world, and Jesus says that's not that's not true greatness. Um, not so with you, verse forty three. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but give his life as a ransom for many. Those who say, look, God just wants me to be happy. God, that wasn't God's primary concern for his son. And it's not his primary concern for you. Uh, just as the son of man came not to, not to do whatever it took to make himself happy, not to, uh, not to do whatever it took so that others would serve him, but rather he came to, to be the servant, to be the slave, to ultimately give his life as a ransom for all. Um, we need to hear that message today as much as any time I can remember. Okay, the last story, Mark chapter 10, verse 46. This man comes to Jesus and asks him the question, help, what can you do to help me to see? Doesn't use those exact words, but that's the message. The story of blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means sons of, son of Timothy, Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. 
When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we would respond the same way the disciples responded, the same way that they responded to the kids wanting to come to Jesus um, and the parents wanting to send them to Jesus for a blessing. We would rebuke him. Shh, you're, you're disturbing the master. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're out of line here. You're out of place. You need to be silent. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And I believe if I'm not mistaken in this trans, in this version in Mark or in one of, the, one of the others, I believe that those three statements are one word statements in the original language. And it's just that quick and that vital to this man. Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And now Jesus asks the question, which God is prone to do, as you know. Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. If Jesus asked you that question today, what would your answer be? What do you want me to do for you? And I hope it's something that is as pure and as uh, unselfish. And yet, still, it's something that God does for you just as God restores this man's sight. Rabbi, I want to see. I want to see. What a great statement. Verse 52, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. That's the right response. Now, we know from the earlier story of the man who lived by the tombs in Mark 5, uh, who wanted to go with Jesus after being healed of the unclean spirit, um, the demon inside of him, the legion of demons. He wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus told him, no, stay here. There are people who need to hear what you have to say here in your hometown, in your home area. But that wasn't true with this man. This man went with Jesus and followed him. Uh, Lord, I want to see. Uh, and, and Jesus gave him his sight through the power of God. And then the man followed Jesus along the way. He did what the disciples had not really figured out what to do yet. And that's follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Lots of questions in Mark 10 and lots more that we have on our minds. But if you have questions, Jesus has answers. Uh, scripture is complete. It is wonderful. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4 that that Every scripture is, is God-breathed or inspired and is profitable for every good thing uh, that, that we need in this life. It may not speak to it directly, but it will speak to it with uh, general principles and statements, sometimes direct statements, and certainly wonderful examples that show us how people lived in wrong ways, <laughs> such as when the disciples were trying to be number one, um, and Jesus told them the first will be last, the, great, the greatest among you are the ones who are the servants. Um, or it may speak specifically about what we should be doing. And faithful people such as this man, blind Bartimaeus, who was received the blessing of God and then followed Jesus uh, with his whole heart. Uh, may we all uh, do the same. Uh, God bless you this week.